This is White Collared, the podcast. Season 2, Episode 12, What Happens in Burma. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I am Eric Elton Glenn Hilliard, and I would like to thank you for joining me for this episode. No announcements at the beginning of this episode, so let's just get into it. What Happens in Burma, first aired on February 1st, 2011, was written by Hi Conrad and directed by John T. Kretschmer. An American college student is being held in a Burmese prison. The charge? He allegedly stole a valuable jewel and smuggled it out of the country. It's an allegation that complicates already delicate and difficult trade negotiations between the U.S. and Burma. A State Department official comes to Peter saying they believe that the ruby and the person actually responsible for the theft are in Manhattan. If the FBI can find them, the Burmese government will have no choice but to release the student. But Peter and Neil soon discover that the representative from the State Department who made the request has not been completely honest with them. The episode begins with Neil and Peter meeting with Adam Wilson, who is the Undersecretary of Asian Affairs for the State Department. He tells them that Christopher Harlow is a college student who has been arrested by the Burmese government on these charges, but he has no prior criminal record, no prior travel, and no apparent contacts in the region, and seems to be an unlikely suspect. However, there are stalled trade negotiations between the U.S. and Burma, and it's suspected that the accusations against Christopher Harlow are intended to embarrass the U.S., and give the Burmese government some leverage in those stalled trade negotiations. We jump to the FBI conference room where Peter is briefing the team. He says that a 237-carat pigeon blood ruby called the Mandalay Ruby is the subject of the investigation. Now, as alluded to in the episode, the term pigeon blood is said to have originated from Burma, and it is said that the perfect ruby is the same color as the first two drops of blood from the nose of a killed pigeon, or alternatively from other sources, that it is the color of the central point of the pigeon's eye. Until recently, there was no official description of the color. All rubies are red, although to be designated a ruby, the gem must be at least 51% red. But they are not visually pure red. They often contain hues of pink, purple, and orange, with pink, of course, being a less saturated version of the color red, while purple and orange are adjacent to the red on the color wheel. Now, as far as the name Mandalay Ruby, I wasn't able to find any reference to a stone that matched the description that we get in the episode. I did find a Mandalay Ruby referenced, although it was merely 48 carats or slightly over 48 carats once cut, so it doesn't seem like that was the same stone. According to the website Internet Stones, it was almost flawless with good transparency, and the color was approaching that of the so-called pigeon's blood color. So it wasn't quite a pigeon blood. However, the quality of the stone in every other respect was so perfect that when it came up for auction in October of 1988, Southby's auction house, who was handling the auction, placed a pre-sale estimate of $15 million on the stone. Nobody bid. The head of jewelry sales for Southby's suggested that, well, the pre-sale estimate probably scared people off. Back into the episode, Peter tells the team that the ruby was previously held in a secured vault at a state mining facility under Army Guard in the middle of a jungle. Diana points out that a mining facility under guard in the middle of a jungle isn't much of a tourist spot. And not the sort of place a college kid might just walk in and pick up a ruby. Neil agrees, adding that the only way to get to the location is by helicopter or a seven-hour jeep ride over some nasty terrain. And also to pull off the job, the thief would need some muscle, a cargo plane, and a few thousand dollars in bribe money just to get started. Although, this is just off the top of his head. He's never considered the idea of stealing gems from Burma. But, of course, we know from the previous episode, Forging Bonds, that was, in fact, exactly the sort of thing he was planning because he told Mozzie he needed a plane, specifically a bush plane, for a job in Burma. So, you know, maybe he had planned at one time to go after this particular Mandalay Ruby himself and just thought better of it or it didn't work out. Who knows? That would be interesting to find out. 
Peter continues that while it is possible that the student is guilty, although given what they know at this point, it seems unlikely, the investigation will move forward under the presumption that the student is innocent. And if they can find the thief in Manhattan, and especially if they can find the jewel, then the Burmese case against Christopher Harlow falls apart. Or at least it should fall apart. Peter and Neil head over to the Burmese-Myanmar consulate to meet with the ambassador. Now, Burma and Myanmar really are two words that mean the same thing, one being derived from the other. Burma, B-U-R-M-A-H, as it was spelled in the 19th century, is a local corruption of the word Myanmar. Anthropologist Gustav Houtman, who has written extensively about Burmese politics, says both have been used within Burma for a long time. There is the formal term, which is Myanmar, and the informal everyday term, which is Burma. Myanmar is the literary form, which is ceremonial and official, and as he says, reeks of government. And he suggests that the name change is a form of censorship. So if the Burmese people are writing for publication, they use Myanmar, but in common everyday vernacular when they're speaking to each other, they use Burma. There are also apparently some political overtones beyond the suggestion of censorship. A Richard Coates, who is a linguist at the University of Western England, says that adopting the traditional formal name is an attempt by the junta to break away from the colonial past. But local opposition groups don't accept that and presumably prefer to use the old colloquial term or the old colloquial name, at least until they have a government with popular legitimacy. And it can be viewed as being indicative of one's political leanings as to which one they use, Burma being used to indicate non-recognition for the military junta and Myanmar being used to indicate a distaste for the colonial powers who in the past called the country Burma. On the other hand, it can be viewed as being indicative of nothing because, again, the Burmese generally verbally refer to their country as Burma, but Myanmar in official written documents. Peter and Neil meet the Burmese ambassador after being brought in by his aide. And Peter and the ambassador have a little sparring match, verbally speaking, about the case against Harlow. The ambassador does give Peter a DVD, which he says will verify that he's being well-treated and that Harlow is, in fact, guilty of the theft. When Peter says that if they can prove that somebody else stole the ruby, he assumes that Christopher would be released. The ambassador equivocates, saying only that the evidence would be brought to the court, which, of course, really doesn't say much. Neil quotes a Burmese proverb, although which in some places is attributed to Burmese origin. In other places, it appears to be attributed to Filipino culture. When Neil quotes the proverb, the ambassador responds that evidence won't really matter once the court has sentenced Harlow. I think it's interesting to note that he says sentenced, not found guilty. At this point, there's been no mention of a trial, so it seems to support the suspicion that the charges are trumped up and that any trial that might take place would be nothing more than a show trial. After the meeting, Neil and Peter and the ambassador's aide walk out. The aide gets into a limo, which has been ticketed for illegal parking. The driver looks at the ticket, picks it up, throws it on the ground like a bubblegum wrapper, as Peter describes it, and blames it on diplomatic immunity. A slight excursion into diplomatic immunity. According to the U.S. Department of State fact sheet, Diplomatic immunity protects the channels of diplomatic communication by exempting diplomats from local jurisdictions so that they can perform their duties with freedom, independence, and security. However, diplomatic immunity is not meant to benefit individuals personally. It is meant to ensure that foreign officials can do their job. Now, the privileges and immunities for diplomats were established in a couple of different international conventions, one in 1961, one in 1969. And more than 160 nations are parties to these treaties. One thing these agreements do stress is that diplomatic immunity is not intended to be a license to abuse the law of the host country. And in fact, in the United States, anytime a person with immunity is alleged to have committed a crime, the State Department advises his or her government of the incident and where prosecution would be the normal procedure, requests a waiver of the alleged offender's immunity so that the case may be heard in the appropriate U.S. court. If immunity is not waived, the State Department may, in serious cases, order the withdrawal of the offender from the United States. In the cases of an offense committed by a member of the diplomat's family, the diplomat and his or her entire family may be expelled. Diplomatic visas of serious offenders can be canceled, 
and their names entered into a worldwide lookout system to keep them from returning to the United States. Unfortunately, although the intention of diplomatic immunity is not to allow people to abuse the local laws, the fact is a diplomat can literally get away with murder so long as the diplomat's host country does not waive their diplomatic immunity. In 1984, for example, an on-duty police officer, Yvonne Fletcher, was murdered in London, shot by a person from inside the Libyan embassy. Libyan diplomats were allowed to leave the country without hassle, and embassy staffers weren't even subject to a bag search on their way out of Heathrow. And to this day, nobody's been charged. Lesser crimes, but often no less offensive or repugnant, which have not been able to be prosecuted because of diplomatic immunity, include violent physical assaults, including rapes and the assaults of spouses and children, theft, smuggling, slavery, vehicular manslaughter, espionage, and money laundering, and parking tickets. In New York in 2002, diplomat parking tickets that had been unpaid mounted up to somewhere around $18 million. Then Mayor Michael Bloomberg decided he needed to deal with the problem. Well, it turns out that diplomatic community does not technically prevent the local authorities from impounding a vehicle. So that's exactly what Bloomberg started doing. He explained his actions by saying these cars block access to emergency service vehicles and it's annoying to our people who pay taxes. Everybody should follow the rules. Well, it was a noble attempt at addressing the problem, but it really didn't. But what it did do was spur the State Department into action. So in 2003, the State Department launched the parking program for diplomatic vehicles in New York and Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. being another place where unpaid parking tickets accumulated by diplomatic personnel had climbed to excessive numbers. Now, under the program, accumulating three or more motor vehicle citations that remain unpaid for more than 100 days will result in the State Department not renewing the registration on those vehicles, nor will they issue any new registration for newly acquired vehicles until those unpaid tickets are cleared up. And of course, if the registrations are not issued, those vehicles cannot be legally driven in the United States. And the penalty for driving those unregistered vehicles is just another meaningless ticket that they can simply choose to ignore. What's that old saying about the definition of insanity being when you do the same thing over and over again, expecting to somehow get a different result? Yeah, that seems to be the case here. Back into the episode, Peter and Neil are discussing the situation and it comes down to this. Once Christopher Harlow is sentenced by the junta, no civilian court will overturn his verdict, and they only have one week to try to prove that he didn't do it. Back in the FBI offices, Peter, Neil, and Diana are briefing Wilson, and they show him the DVD that was given to them by the Burmese ambassador. The video shows Christopher saying that, yes, he stole the ruby, and giving some general details about how he supposedly accomplished it. Wilson admits that he knew that there had been a supposed confession that he hadn't told them about, which Neil says will be hard to refute. Peter and Neil confront Wilson with the other thing he hadn't told them, that Chris Harlow is Wilson's son, and that that is why he came to the FBI. Wilson tells the team about the strained relationship between himself and Chris and expresses concern that if the Burmese government finds out that Chris is his son, they will use that as a bargaining chip in the trade negotiations. Neil says that during the video, they could see that Chris was doing something with his hands, wondering if he had been trying to maybe send a signal. Diana, who is the child of a diplomat, says that children of diplomats are trained to send messages if they're in trouble. The problem is that the video that they were given by the Burmese ambassador has been edited, with the image zoomed in to show only Chris's head and shoulders, making it impossible to see most of what he was doing with his hands. So if they want to find out what he was trying to tell them or even have a chance of it, they're going to need a copy of the original unaltered video. Next, Peter and Neil are discussing the merits of Wilson's parenting skills. Neil isn't impressed. Peter says, look, Wilson's job put his son at risk, and when he was in danger, he took action to try and protect him. And if it had been him in danger, his father would have done the same thing. Peter asks Neil what his father would have done because despite having chased and studied Neil, and despite knowing as much as he does about Neil, he doesn't know much about him prior to his 18th birthday. Neil tries to sidestep the question, but Peter insists. And all Neil gives Peter at this point is that his dad was a cop, which is a revelation that leaves Peter somewhat stunned. 
After this, Neo returns to his apartment to find Mozzie there. And Mozzie isn't happy. You know, I'd appreciate it if you'd replenish my supply when you diminish it. I'm wallowing. Word on the street is you went to Randy Morosco for information. Well, a unique black market pigeon blood recently made its way to New York, and none of the local shops have anything like it. No one would try to sell a stone like that without cutting it first. It calls too much attention to itself. That's why Randy Morosco is the kind of guy that can help me find it. I'm a gem expert. That's true. And you asked to keep your distance from the FBI. I was doing you a favor. Oh, by conversing with my arch rival. Everyone drew our tribal moss. But I would like the chance at first veto on helping. I will come to you first next time. Well, is everyone really Mozzie's arch rival? I guess in his mind, they are. But he does have a point about the matter of protocol. Neil was only trying to respect Mozzie's wishes. But it's one of those, it's a fine balance things, you know, where... You have to balance respecting his wishes to stay as far away from the FBI as possible while at the same time not hurting his ego and respecting his right to choose at what point he might deviate from that standard policy of trying to stay away from the FBI as much as possible. After Neil apologizes to Mozzie for going to someone else for help, the conversation moves to the topic of parents. Hey, Moz. Yeah. You ever curious about your birth parents? <laughs> no, thanks. I don't need to look into the crystal ball of my future. Are you heading down that road again? No, I was talking with Peter today. My father came up. I just find it fascinating considering your patriarchal relationship with the suit and your penchant for breaking the law. So I'm not the only one who recognizes the familial type relationship that has developed between Peter and Neil, the father-son type relationship. Mozzie makes a point of calling out the dichotomy of being a career criminal while having had a cop for a father and a cop for a father figure, I guess, in Peter. But during the conversation, Mozzie also asks Neil, does Peter know? So even though we don't find out what it is that Peter may or may not know at this point, obviously there's more to the story, which we will find out about later in the episode. The conversation then briefly moves back to Randy Morosco and the Ruby with Neil saying that he hasn't seen Randy since before he went to prison. And he thinks that Randy will talk as long as Neil comes back as the guy Randy remembers. Next, we see Neil on the street, picking up a photo of a woman and a young boy from a street vendor and he puts it into a wallet and he's wearing glasses. When Peter comes up to him and asks about the glasses, Neil gives out with a lame excuse, which Peter promptly points out is a lame excuse. Neil tells Peter about Randy. He says he deals in stones of questionable legitimacy, and it's not just about the stone and the uniqueness of the piece. It's also about the story and the uniqueness of that. And if there's some truth to the story, like getting smuggled out of a Burmese fortress, so much the better. Peter and Neil have a minor disagreement about method. Peter saying he wants to go the warrant route and that Chris doesn't have the time to spare, to which Neil counters exactly, which is why we have to do it my way, because if the Ruby's there, I will find it out. No waiting. Neil also warns Peter not to take Randy for granted, saying that he can slice a gem like Marcel Tolkowski. Marcel Tolkowski was born to a family of diamond cutters and dealers in 1899, and he received encouragement from his grandfather at an early age to focus on the more technical aspects of the diamond business. After spending years in his family's workshop, he attended the University of London, where he became an accomplished scholar, a mathematician, physicist, and engineer. His PhD dissertation was focused on the subject of diamond grinding, and he was slightly obsessed about discovering the ideal dimensions of a diamond. In 1919, he published a piece called Diamond Design, and the diamond cutting industry has never been the same again. The work detailed his scientific approach to diamond cutting, focusing on the reflection and refraction of light, and included detailed studies of properties of diamonds and his recommended proportions for an ideal cut diamond, which is where the ideal cut originated. Better lighting, fluorescent, and other modern light sources that didn't exist at the time or were not particularly common in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, have revealed limitations to Tolkowski's cutting design, 
which developed based on viewing with light sources such as candlelight and gas lamps that lit up diamonds from the side rather than from the top. As a result, many new cuts have been developed since, which are better suited to the modern environment, but they are refinements and enhancements to the groundbreaking work of Marcel Tulkowski, which still underlies them all. Back in the episode, Peter and Neil enter Randy's shop, whereupon Randy greets Neil as Mr. Donnelly. Randy asks about the family, and Neil shows him the photo he had picked up from the street vendor. After a bit of reminiscing, Neil introduces Peter as his brother-in-law and gives him the name Mr. Satchmo. And we can see that Peter hates it. The story is that Mr. Donnelly forgot his wife's birthday last year and that Mr. Satchmo is there to make sure he makes up for it this year. Neil says that he's heard that Randy had recently designed something special. The rarer, the better. He's hitting all of Randy's weak spots. Randy pulls out several pieces, including one that seems to be what they are looking for. A necklace featuring a large pigeon blood ruby. Randy begins telling a story about how it was supposedly part of the Maharaja's collection, about how a servant girl was caught sleeping with the Maharaja by his wife, how the servant girl ran off with the necklace, and though penniless, refused to sell it, prizing its beauty more than its monetary value. Neil and Peter step away and have a brief conference, and of course the provenance is fake, and the stone couldn't have been cut and polished 150 years earlier because of how it was done. So they conclude that this has to be the stone they're looking for. Neil tries to keep control of the negotiations with Randy, but Peter jumps the line, identifying himself as FBI, and that he knows that Randy is selling stolen merchandise. Neil isn't happy with Peter about having a perfectly good alias, Mr. Donnelly, burned. But Peter isn't happy with Neil about being named after his dog. So I guess they're kind of even, sort of. Back at the office, Peter is briefing Diana. Randy claimed that this was the first time he had done business with this guy who gave him the stone or got him the stone. He doesn't know his name. And the only descriptive detail he can give is that he has a British accent. Oh, that narrows it down. So they come up with a plan. Let's use Randy's upcoming show to exhibit stones from an apparent competitor to their supplier, hoping to lure him out and then bust him. Problem is, as Neil points out, they have to be able to display something that is of real quality and that isn't already part of Randy's inventory, which everybody already knows about. Peter reluctantly reveals that the FBI confiscates black market gems. Neil is aghast, not only that they're sitting in a vault collecting dust, but also that Peter never told him. Jones brings out a collection of gems and brings them into the conference room and proudly shows them to Neil, who is less than impressed. There's not a lot of them. And he says merely that they're nice. He says, sure, they'll help. But, you know, these aren't really the lure that they need. What they need is an impressive pigeon blood ruby. After all, they need something that's going to threaten the smuggler's apparent corner on the market of pigeon blood rubies. And since they can't go to Burma to get one, Neil will need an oven that reaches 2,000 degrees Celsius and some welding equipment. Next, we see Mozzie playing mad scientist with the equipment that Neil convinced Peter to procure. And it seems that Mozzie is starting to reconsider his relationship to the FBI, or at least his relationship to Peter when he says, perhaps assisting the suit isn't so bad. I haven't had this much fun since I tripped Noam Chomsky. Avram Noam Chomsky is primarily an American linguist, although he is also a philosopher, cognitive scientist, historical essayist, social critic, and political activist. Sometimes called the father of modern linguistics, Chomsky is also a major figure in analytical philosophy and one of the founders of the field of cognitive science and one of the most cited scholars in modern history. He began his work in the 1950s and revolutionized the field of linguistics by treating language as a uniquely human, biologically-based cognitive capacity. Chomsky held that the basic principles of all languages, as well as the basic range of concepts they are used to express, are innately represented in the human mind. Politically, Chomsky developed a dislike for capitalism and the pursuit of material wealth, but at the same time he developed a disdain for authoritarian socialism as represented by the Marxist-Leninist philosophies and policies of the Soviet Union. He also stated his opposition to the ruling elites, among them institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, and GATT. Some of his more interesting and politically diverse quotes include, if we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, 
We don't believe in it at all. Also, the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. And also, any dictator would admire the uniformity and obedience of the U.S. media. When Peter arrives and asks why an oxyhydrogen blowtorch is going to show up on his expense report, Mozzie references Auguste Bernoulli. Now, Auguste Victor Louis Bernoulli was a French chemist best known for inventing the first commercially viable process for the manufacture of synthetic gemstones. In 1902, he discovered the flame fusion process, today called the Bernoulli process, which remains in use today as an inexpensive means of making artificial jewels such as rubies and sapphires. Well, after hours of work, Mozzie comes up with a large synthetic ruby, large enough to attract the attention of their smuggler, after which Neil cuts and polishes it. When he's done, Neil declares the ruby to be perfect, which is a problem. Real gems have flaws, and perfection is the antithesis of authenticity. Neil hits the ruby with a hammer to create a less-than-perfect result. Peter wonders if it will be good enough to fool their suspect, and Mozzie says that unless anyone's looking at it under a microscope, it'll be fine. But just to make sure that that doesn't happen, Neil has a plan. Turns out Neil's plan is to have models walking a fashion runway wearing the pieces. You can't inspect them too closely if you can't get close to them. Diana is one of the models, and Randy approves of her in a creepy, lecherous sort of way. And when she tries to warn him off by reminding him that she carries a gun, it doesn't seem to do any good. In fact, that bit of information seems to entice him even more. Randy is creepy. Yeah. Peter gallantly tries to run interference for Diana, telling Randy that he's barking up the wrong tree. But, of course, Diana really doesn't need Peter to run interference for her because she's more than capable of neutering Randy all on her own. We know this. We've seen it before. Also, does anyone else notice that the three or four models that we see and Diana all have the same hairstyle? I know it's, it's not a meaningful detail, but I thought it was interesting. I don't know if that was because that was a common hairstyle for models back then, or if it was a standard thing that you made all the models have the same type of hairstyles and, and makeup or something like that. I don't know. It's interesting. I just thought it was interesting, at least. Well, the team is milling around, waiting for their smuggler to hopefully show up, which he does. And, of course, he is drawn to the ruby that Mozzie and Neil created. So Neil begins chatting him up, telling the smuggler about a story involving discovering the jewel at a castle in the Scottish Highlands in a rock collection of all things. Of course, the smuggler's smart enough not to believe the story because he's a professional liar too. Neil returns the favor by complimenting him on the creativity of the Maharaja story and then proceeds to call him out, telling him that he knows that the paperwork that supposedly documents the provenance might pass muster for the majority of buyers, but not someone with a discerning eye. They finally drop all pretense when Neil congratulates their suspect on securing the Mandalay ruby. Their as-of-yet unnamed suspect is curious as to where Neil got his stone, and as Neil puts it, he's apparently not one for a little healthy competition. He wants the market to himself. Then Neil says that the entire reason for the show was to meet him. And that's true. Neil says there's a lot of money to be made by the two of them joining forces. There's the lure. Or there's the hook, I guess. The jewel was the lure. This is the hook. Their suspect bites, and he agrees to meet Neil in a more private location. After a bit, the smuggler joins Neil, who's in the basement waiting for him, and he's clearly cautious because he took a while to get down there to meet Neil, as evidenced by Neil's comment, thought you'd changed your mind. But apparently their suspect is more than just cautious. He's got his right hand behind him, and we can see from Neil's changing posture and his vocal inflections that he realizes this is not a good thing, which of course it isn't. Their smuggler suspect pulls a gun on Neil, complete with a suppressor, which is technically and functionally more accurate term for what is commonly but mistakenly called a silencer because it does no such thing. Apparently their suspect thinks that he can put it on the end of his gun and shoot Neil without the sound of the gunshot being heard and giving himself away and if that's the case he is in for a bitter disappointment. As one person has put it, a suppressor takes ear damaging shots and makes them merely ear hurting shots. In fact, if they're in the basement that's going to do more to keep other people from hearing the shot than the suppressor will. Although it will also amplify the sound of the shot within the room, hurting his ears even more than it would have otherwise. But he's going to learn. 
Oh, no, he's not. Because he never gets a chance to use the gun and learn the true facts about suppressors. Because Jones, then Peter, then Diana all joined the party. Guns trained on him. So he's outgunned, and he's gone from the comparatively mild charge of smuggling to the attempted murder of an FBI agent. Although in reality, I'm not sure how well that charge would stick, since he really didn't make an actual attempt to kill anybody on the team. It may be that it's more of a threat to force his cooperation than anything else, but worst case scenario, I'm sure they can come up with something that is significant enough that they can actually hold him for an extended period of time and still get a conviction on it. During the interrogation by Peter, the suspect, one Andrew Collins by name, seems quite eager to take credit for his work and doesn't seem to mind that he's been arrested for it. It's almost as if he considers being arrested for the crime as a badge of honor. And during the questioning, he seems to exonerate Christopher Howe from any participation in the theft of the Mandalay Ruby. After the interrogation, Peter sends the statement by Collins, clearing Christopher of participation in the jewel theft and smuggling to the Burmese ambassador. And while they're waiting for confirmation of Christopher's release, Peter, Neil, and the Undersecretary Wilson are talking. When was the last time you saw your son? Eight years ago? My divorce was messy. I tried to remain close with Chris, but he ended up resenting everything I stand for. And ultimately, he said he didn't need me. A 12-year-old doesn't know what he does or doesn't need. He didn't want to be my son. There was nothing I could do. Yeah. Well, you're his father. He should have kept trying. Clearly, that conversation didn't go well. I don't think the issue is that one of them, Neil or Wilson, is right and one is wrong. I think the issue is that they may both be right and they may both be wrong, but for different reasons, maybe. Neil is correct, inasmuch as a parent should always keep trying to maintain a relationship with their child regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what the child says, or regardless of how the child behaves. But Neil seems to be projecting superimposing his feelings about his own father or some father figure that he's had in his life onto Wilson, which is wrong because Neil and his father or this father figure that we don't know about are not the same people and not the same people in the same situations. At this point, as far as I can recall, we really don't have any information about the nature of his parents' relationship with each other or with him. And we don't have any evidence that Neil's mother and father are divorced, as is the case with Christopher Harlow's parents, at least not as far as I can remember. Now, the very nature of a divorce and the breakdown of the relationship between the adults involved in it, how they respond to each other as a result of that breakdown can significantly change the relationship between the child and each of those parents, particularly if it was an acrimonious divorce. It's the sort of difference that a child from a non-divorced family might be hard-pressed to understand. As far as Wilson goes, it does sound as if he gave up trying to keep a relationship with his son intact. It sounds as if he stopped trying to communicate with Christopher after Christopher said he didn't want to be his father's son. Whatever it was that Christopher saw in his father, or thought he saw in him, we don't know. But whatever it was, that wasn't a reason to just cut off all contact. But on the other hand, we don't know what it was that Christopher saw, or thought he saw, in his father that precipitated his desire to cut himself off from his father. And although Wilson should have tried to keep the lines of communication open in some way, which as I said, it doesn't sound as if he did, we don't know anything about Christopher's temperament or his emotional state. We also don't know what sort of things Christopher's mother, Wilson's ex-wife, was telling him about Wilson. He did say the divorce was messy, so it's entirely possible that Christopher developed a distorted image of his father in his mind as a result of the arguments and so on, or that Christopher's mother painted a false image of Wilson for Christopher and that his perception of his father was based on that or changed to that or distorted by that. These sorts of things can happen in both directions in divorces. The mother can do it. The father can do it. Other people can do it. I mean, can you imagine the upheaval in the mind of a 12-year-old who has emotionally align themselves with one parent, believing them to be, or convinced that they are, an aggrieved victim, and that the other parent is some sort of malicious aggressor, only to then be told that the parent in whom he or she has placed their trust has been less than honest about 
not only the other parent, but also about themselves and their behavior. And this sort of thing happens often in divorces. And you may even know of a case yourself personally. I don't know about you, but I can certainly see the possibility of a parent, metaphorically speaking, falling on their sword, letting themselves be seen as the bad guy, so to speak, in the mind of a child out of respect for not only the child's emotional well-being, but even out of respect for the other parent and the relationship between that other parent and the child. It's a terrible thing for one parent to destroy a child's relationship with their other parent, but it's just as bad for that other parent to do the same in return. And cutting oneself off from their child may not be the correct choice, but I can understand a parent doing that if they believe it's better for the child emotionally in the short term. Now, hopefully, as the child gets older, they get more knowledge, more information, more maturity, more understanding. They might be better able to understand that in a divorce, not everything is black and white. In a divorce, it's almost never the sole fault of one or the other. And that what each parent says has to be viewed through a lens of objectivity that the two parents themselves may not have. And hopefully, once the child reaches the age where they can deal with all this information and they can process it and understand the situation and both people involved in the divorce better, after having had that separation from that one parent or the other parent, they can come back and say, look, I understand the situation better now. What I was told wasn't necessarily the truth. What I was led to believe about you wasn't necessarily the truth. I want to reestablish a relationship with you and try to understand you better and try to have the relationship that got, or at least rebuild the relationship that we had get broken because of this divorce. So I can see Wilson doing what he did I can see the reasons Wilson did what he did. I would not necessarily agree with them, but I can understand them. Well, the call they've been waiting for comes in, but it's not really the call they've been waiting for. It seems that once the Burmese ambassador got a hold of him, Collins changed his story. Previously, he said he'd done it all alone, that he didn't know Christopher Harlow. Now he says he knows Harlow, and Harlow was involved. And the Burmese are keeping Collins under lock and key away from Peter, in what is a rather transparent attempt to make sure that nobody can contradict the official narrative with pesky little details like actual facts and truth. Peter is not happy. Peter tells Collins, hey, we made a deal. And Neil says, looks like he made a better one. But did he? What did the Burmese do to convince Collins to lie for them? Because he is lying for them. Did they threaten him, make promises, some combination of promising things if he cooperated and threatening him with things if he didn't? Presumably, they also coached him in what they wanted him to say. So does Collins actually think that a government or its officials who are blatantly that dishonest in one thing can be trusted in another? After all, Collins would know that they persuaded him to lie. And he has to know that his lie is in support of their lie. And once they follow through with their threat to issue a sentence against Christopher in less than a week, Collins becomes a liability that they need to have disappeared. True, he couldn't damage their trumped-up case against Christopher at that point because, as was already indicated, once sentenced, they weren't going to let anything change that because the civilian court wasn't going to override the judgment of the military junta. But Collins could embarrass them, so he would need to be disposed of to make sure that didn't happen. Collins, I think, made a bad deal. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. No matter what anyone says, no matter what the popular myth is, there is no honor amongst thieves. Any notion of honor amongst thieves is trumped by the philosophy of leave no witnesses. Always assassinate the assassin. At the Burke home, while waiting for word that they've obtained a copy of the original unaltered video of Christopher Harlow's alleged confession, Peter presses Neil to talk about his father. Neil says that his mother told him that his father was a police officer who went out in a hail of gunfire, taking down a whole gang of bad guys, and that when other kids wanted to play cowboys and Indians, Neil wanted to play cops and robbers, pretending to be his father, and that he got good with guns. Although, 
as you will recall, he probably isn't as good with them as he should have been, considering the incidents like the one with Professor Maria Fiametta in Book of Hours, where he forgot to remove a round from the chamber, which was a mistake that could have cost him his life, or in Unfinished Business, where he inadvertently loaded around back into the chamber before leaving it within the reach of Halbridge Price. Diana calls and tells Peter, got a copy of the video, and you need to see it. Back at the FBI building, Peter, Diana, and Neil watch the unaltered video and are able to see what the Burmese officials didn't want them to see. Christopher is, in fact, sending a message. He's wearing a T-shirt with printing on it, so he begins touching different letters of the shirt and his need to fill in a missing letter, all done as if they were nervous gestures. And he spells out the nickname of his girlfriend, Rocker, a.k.a. Maggie Sheldon. And Peter's concerned for Maggie because the Burmese may have already figured out the message. Later, Maggie and Wilson are at the FBI offices, and Maggie has just finished giving a statement. Peter asks her to tell Wilson what she had told the FBI. Her apartment had been burglarized and an external hard drive stolen. It seems Chris had been in Burma doing a documentary about a rebel movement. Learning this is a sort of light bulb moment for Peter. He now understands why the Burmese government pinned the theft of the ruby on Chris. It gave them an excuse to detain him in an effort to suppress the videos that he had collected. During the conversation, a reference is made to the KNLA, and we get a brief overview of them. A little more detailed information on the KNLA. That stands for Karen National Liberation Army. Burma is divided into seven states, with Karen being one of them. The KNLA, originally the Karen National Defense Organization, or KNDO, was formed in 1947 to defend caring communities and interests. At the time of Burmese independence from the British in 1948, there was considerable tension between the caring community and the Burmese majority. And the country has been in a virtually constant state of civil war since 1948. More than 16 different insurgent groups have been in conflict with the various governments of the nation over the years, and the KNLA seems to be one of the more prominent groups. While continuing the decades-long fight against the various incarnations of the Burmese governments, they've also had internal struggles of their own with a group of Buddhist soldiers claiming that the KNLA was unfairly dominated by Christians, and in 1980 they broke away to form a new force, the Democratic Karen Buddhist Army. Now, this group quickly came to terms with the Burmese government, which had become a military government after the 1962 military coup d'etat, and this group actively began joining in the military government attacks against the KNLA, a group that they originally had been a member of. But in 2010, with the announcement that the Burmese military government would absorb the DKBA, many members again switched their sides, realigning themselves with the KNLA. Back in the episode, Wilson and Maggie talk about Chris. Wilson expresses how he feels about the entire situation being his fault. And Maggie says Chris doesn't see it that way. And she shows him a video clip where Chris calls his father a wise man. Inadvertently calls him that, but he does call him that. The video also records a rocket attack by the government, which Neil and Peter realize can hopefully be used to establish that Chris couldn't have been in a position to steal the ruby. And Jones appears at that moment and reports that surveillance video from an ATM near Maggie's apartment shows a vehicle with diplomatic plates presumably linked to the Burmese consulate, arriving, then leaving the front of the apartment building where Maggie lives. Peter and the team confront the Burmese ambassador's aide, saying that the consulate vehicle was involved in a theft, and they would like to search the car. And her. And she has no problem with either of those things, but draws the line at the diplomatic pouch, not even letting any of them hold it while she was being patted down. Of course, the ambassador comes out to take control of the situation, and Peter tells him that this vehicle was linked to a crime, that the consulate staff has been very cooperative, but a search of the pouch would completely exonerate any of them from connection to the crime in question. But of course, the ambassador refuses. I wonder why. Peter and Neil briefly discuss their options, and as they're doing that, Neil gets a text message, and they go their separate ways. The text Neil received was from Wilson, requesting a meeting in the park. At that meeting, Wilson tells Neil that he feels responsible for Chris's current situation and that he needs to try to make it right. 
he realizes that if the Burmese get the hard drive out of the U.S., there's no hope for Chris. Wilson tells Neil he knows who he is and that he wants Neil to steal it back. Back at the FBI offices, Peter and Diana are in Peter's office discussing the case. Peter, of course, is frustrated at the double talk coming from Diana's diplomatic contacts in Washington, responses which, in typical bureaucratic fashion, use a lot of words to say nothing. He's also frustrated by a nagging suspicion about Wilson's decision to come to Peter with the case. Diana says it's because Peter's the best. And Neil is, light bulb moment, Peter realizes that Wilson's entire play was to get Neil involved because he wanted Neil handy to go around the system if and when it became necessary. Peter tells Diana he wants Neil's tracking information for the previous 36 hours and wants to know every place he's been in that time. Next, we see Neil and Mozzie discussing how to get the hard drive from the diplomatic pouch. The pouch departs for Burma the next day on an 11 o'clock in the morning flight, and that Sue Ram, the ambassador's aide, will be carrying it. But since everything in the pouch is property of Burma, stolen or not, Neil removing the drive would instantly be an international incident. The solution, of course, is not to take it out themselves, but to get the Burmese to remove it in such a way that Neil can legally recover it. Using their fake ruby as a double for the stolen Mandalay ruby, they plan to present the ruby to the aide in a box that has been booby-trapped to generate smoke. Except that, as Mozzie is demonstrating the function of their smoke bomb box, it doesn't smoke. Undeterred, Mozzie still declares the brilliance of their plan and the smoke bomb that doesn't smoke. There's a knock on the door. It's Peter. In an effort to hide the evidence of their plotting, Mozzie tucks the box into his jacket. Peter enters the apartment, at which time the box naturally starts making smoke. Mozzie tries to explain it by stating, well, of course it's smoking. It's a smoking jacket, which is not what the term means, and it's not what he's wearing. At Peter's request, Mozzie steps out onto the balcony, ostensibly to get some fresh air, which is presumably more for the benefit of his jacket than himself. And with Mozzie gone, Peter confronts Neil. You met with Wilson yesterday. Whatever he's asking you to do, he's got nowhere else to turn. Wilson's trying to make good with his son, and I can help him. The system failed him. You're rationalizing, and you know it. Nothing gives him or you or anyone the right to go around the law. It's his son. That gives him the right. I don't agree with that. It's what a father should do. All right, look. Obviously, there's more to the story with your dad. I don't know how badly it messed with your head. You're right. You don't. If this were your son, or my son, I know what you would do. One wrong move inside the Burmese consulate and they will extradite you. You'll end up in a cabal prison. I can't protect you. Interesting conversation. Interesting situation. Full of conflicting emotions, ideologies, and intentions. First of all, Peter believes that Neil's about to do something criminal. Conversely, Neil realizes that whatever he does, it can't be criminal because of the international implications. Peter believes, correctly I think, that part of Neil's motivations are mixed up with his feelings about his father. Despite the fact that Peter isn't sure what those feelings are, despite the fact that he realizes he doesn't have the full story, Neil is, I think, trying and failing to convince himself that his motivations for helping Wilson have nothing to do with his father. Neil believes, correctly I think, that despite his protestations to the contrary, if it was Peter and his son, or Neil and Neil's son, that Peter would be willing to go around the law to rescue him. Peter is, I think, trying to, and failing to, convince himself that he wouldn't skirt the law in order to save his son, or Neil's son. I think it's interesting that Neil doesn't just confine his comment to, if it were your son, he extends it to, or my son. This could have just been an appeal to Peter as a partner, but I think it's more than that. I've said before that I think there's something of a father-son dynamic going on between the two and a father-son type bond between the two, or at least with regard to Peter's feelings toward Neil. Not that I think that Peter thinks of himself as Neil's father, but his attitude toward Neil has fatherly overtones. And even if Neil himself doesn't have reciprocal feelings toward Peter, but I think he does, but even if he doesn't, he at least senses Peter's fatherly feelings toward him. And I think 
that this appeal, Neil saying, if it were my son, is something of an appeal toward those feelings because Peter's fatherly feelings toward Neil would extend to any child of Neil's, which would be, in a sense, Peter's grandchild. Now, I don't think this is intentionally, manipulatively intended by Neil. I think it's a sincere, albeit unrealized, appeal to someone who has become something of a father figure to him, which may also explain something of his testiness toward Peter whenever Peter's asked about Neil's father. Even if unconsciously he's recognizing that father-son dynamic and bond that is developing between the two, it would be understandable that he would also unconsciously be resisting that as it would seem to be disloyal to his actual father. An alternate explanation, or, or maybe a secondary factor, would be if this father-like view of Peter is superimposed over Neil's feelings toward his biological father, and those two views are at odds with each other as father images. So different personalities, different goals in life, different philosophies and approaches to things, they're contradicting each other. But if Neil sees both of them, both of these individuals as a father or father figure, it could result in some emotional and psychological conflicts within Neil. Now, as Peter continues to try to dissuade Neil from whatever it is he has planned, he says, one wrong move inside the Burmese consulate and they will extradite you. You'll end up in a cabal prison. I can't protect you. Oh, we already know that Neil's plan probably doesn't involve getting inside the consulate, although Peter isn't necessarily aware of that at this moment. The first part of that, what he says there about extradition and a cabal prison, is said as a warning with sort of a tough love attitude behind the words. But it's when he says, I can't protect you. I hear a change. I hear fear in his voice. There's still that tough love, scared straight tone over the top, but underneath, I hear fear. I hear the fear of a father who sees his son going down a wrong path and knows that if he goes down that path and he gets in trouble, there's nothing he can do about it. Peter walks out of the apartment. I've got to imagine that was one of the longest, hardest walks he's taken in a long time because he's basically walking away from Neil, knowing that the situation may develop in such a way that he can't do anything to help Neil. And I think that hurts him. And I think that makes it tough to walk away. Inside the Burmese consulate, we see the ambassador slip the external drive in question into the diplomatic pouch and hand it to his aide, Sue Rom. Neil meets her outside on the sidewalk in front of the consulate building. He gives her the fake ruby, which she presumes to be the stolen ruby, and he doesn't correct her really. And, of course, she takes it back into the consulate building so she can show it to the ambassador. In the meantime, Diana has caught up with Peter. Boss! What? I'm glad I caught you. I got Neil's tracking data. He's at the Burmese mission. Uh, I knew it. He's going after the drive, isn't he? I warned him. Yeah, but you didn't stop him. What do you mean? Boss, you could have chained him to the desk if you wanted to, but you didn't. Are you saying I want him to get that drive? I'm saying that you know Christopher's innocent and you're not exactly fond of diplomats. I don't want Neil to get caught. Well, you know where he is. I have your diplomatic friends on speed dial. If this goes wrong, Neil and I are going to start an international incident. Diana is correct when she says that Peter could have done something to stop Neil, but he didn't. Or at least he could have tried to do something. Whether or not he would have succeeded, that's a different discussion. But yes, he could have at least tried. But the reason she attributes to his not trying to stop Neil, I think, is wrong. Or at least partially wrong. Yes, Peter knows Christopher is innocent. But it really doesn't have that much to do with his dislike for diplomats. Peter's dislike for diplomats, that is. I think Neil got to Peter when he said, if it was your son or mine. I think it was the fear he felt when he said, I can't protect you. I think both of those things unburied a deep sense of empathy and brought it to the surface in Peter for Christopher's father. Maybe a depth of empathy he had never felt before. There's, I think there's a difference between the feeling of empathizing with someone through merely analogous situations and relationships and empathizing with someone through actual similar situations and relationships. Peter wasn't a father and had, as far as we know, or at least, as far as I can determine myself, he'd never been a father figure before. 
or had a father-like bond with anyone before. So any empathy he would have felt in the past for a father or mother in danger of losing their child would have been an analogous sort of empathy based perhaps on the loss of one of his parents, some other relative, some other loved one, but not as a parent in danger of losing a child. But now he has someone, Neil, toward whom he has parental feelings, no matter how much he might try to deny it if he were asked. And I think that maybe, I just had had this thought, maybe what Peter is responding to empathetically is something Neil conspicuously didn't say. Maybe something he meant when he asked the question or, or what Peter might have heard in the question that the question being asked or heard wasn't, what if it was your son, as some non-existent alternate universe or future possibility son. But if the question was really, what if it was your son, Neil Caffrey? I think maybe all of this culminated in Peter seeing Neil being or going into that same situation and him being willing to risk going outside channels skirting the law, the very conversation that they had earlier, because it was his son, in a manner of speaking. It was Neil who was going to be in a situation somewhat akin to what Christopher is in. I don't know. Just had that thought, that Peter is actually seeing this as him and Neil. Anyway, the ambassador and his aide come back outside the consulate building where Neil's standing by. The ambassador has the diplomatic pouch containing the hard drive and the fake ruby and the smoking box that isn't smoking. As they approach the consulate limo, Peter arrives. Neil is momentarily surprised, and he's really surprised when, rather than chastising him, Peter asks him, what do you need me to do? What do you need me for? Neil says the smoking jacket isn't smoking, so they need to stall until it starts smoking. Peter approaches the ambassador and starts playing a bureaucratic delaying game, beginning with a single parking ticket on the limo for parking in front of a fire hydrant. The ambassador says, we don't pay parking tickets and claims diplomatic immunity since the vehicle belongs to the consulate. Peter says, prove it. Show me the registration. The ambassador pulls out the registration and hands it and a stack of 18 additional parking tickets to Peter. Big mistake. Peter says, well, maybe diplomatic immunity means that they can't be held accountable for the violations, but that they are, however, required to help him close out his investigation of said parking violations. I'm not going to say that Peter just made that up, but yeah, I think he just made that up. Peter starts going through the tickets one by one at a leisurely pace. This one dated such and such. What was your reason for not paying this one? Oh, right diplomatic immunity oh what about this one let's see it was dated hmm, i can't quite make it out well, after several moments and several tickets the smoking jacket starts smoking the aide panics unzips the pouch and drops the contents onto the sidewalk understandable the first thought would be that there is something burning inside the pouch and they would want to try to save the contents of the pouch and the best way to do that would be to dump them out but of course, once the hard drive is out of the pouch, it's no longer diplomatically protected as if it was on Burmese soil or Burmese property. Neil snatches the drive from the sidewalk, which of course doesn't make the Burmese ambassador happy. First, he accuses Neil of having tampered with the pouch, which technically he didn't as he never touched the pouch. Then he claims that the hard drive is official Myanmar property, except that it was stolen from an apartment in the U.S., which makes it evidence in a criminal investigation. So, since it was not in the pouch, and it's evidence in a criminal investigation, the FBI is entitled to seize it. Then he tries to claim that Neil took it from the diplomatic pouch, which, of course, isn't true at all because Neil picked it up from the sidewalk. Then, as a final, last-ditch effort, he whines. You can't do that. Of course, all the responses that Peter gives are based on technicalities, but then so is everything that the Burmese ambassador had done up to this point. So it comes back to the old saying, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Or put it another way, what goes around comes around. Peter, Neil, Wilson, and Maggie are on a park bench recapping. The Burmese government can't do anything about Neil stealing, stealing, recovering the hard drive 
because they can't admit that it exists and that they themselves tried to steal it without having to also explain why they wanted to steal it. The video of the rebels are in the hands of the U.S. government, which will keep the Burmese government from learning their identities. Or at least they won't be able to learn them from the video. They probably have other ways of identifying them if they choose to. As they're talking, the consulate limo pulls up and a new ambassador comes out. Apparently, the previous ambassador had to go home for health reasons. Yeah, I'm guessing that's a euphemism for a political execution. There are hugs between Chris and Maggie, then Chris and his father. As Peter and Neil watch the father-son reunion, Neil has something to tell Peter. You asked me about my dad. I think my mom told me what any kid would want to hear. That he was a hero? He wasn't. He's a dirty cop. You're not him. If I'm not my father's son, who am I? Certain things are in my blood. Christopher is free because of you. Nature or nurture? There are a lot of people trying to prove that personality behavior, and other things like that are nature, that they are hereditary, they're passed on from parent to child. But they haven't been able to prove it because they haven't been able to eliminate nurture. The environmental influences and experiences involving parents, friends, education, religion, and so on, they haven't been able to remove those from their equations and their studies. All they've been able to prove is that there are, or maybe, biological conditions which can contribute to mental health issues or tendencies towards such issues, and that those can be passed from parent to child. But contributions and tendencies are not causes, and they do not lead to inevitabilities. So, no, Neil, while certain things are in your blood and certain things are passed down through biology, dishonesty, criminal behavior, attitudes, beliefs, no, none of these are in the blood. These are all learned choices or learned responses. They may be influenced by things passed through biology, but those things that are passed down through biology do not control choices and responses. Or at least they don't have to. Your own actions, Neil, your own changing attitudes, your own compassions have proven that it's what you choose to do. It's how you choose to respond. Those are all within your power to choose. And your criminal behavior, your dishonesty up to this point, no, those are not in your blood. You did not get those from your father. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thank you for joining me. I want to remind you that the website, www.whitecolloredpc.com, has show notes, has links to newpodcastapps.com, resources that I've used in creating this episode, links so that you can subscribe in your favorite pod player, and links so that you can provide some financial support for the show. Now, I would like to take a moment to turn this closing into a public service announcement of sorts on behalf of small podcasters. And I want to make sure that you understand this is not about me or this podcast, not specifically anyway. Although I don't mention it often with regard to this podcast, there are regular and continuing expenses associated with having a podcast. For a podcast like this, and perhaps most of the podcasts that you enjoy, the host is a no-name who doesn't get paid. There are no big production staffs to get paid. There are no marketing people that have to be paid. There are no big companies behind the podcasts whose purpose it is to make a profit for themselves and their investors. The expenses of smaller podcasts, such as this one, are obviously smaller than those of a big company, where there's a lot of people that are working on it, and they don't do anything unless they get paid. But there are still expenses that add up. Now, most of us who do small independent podcasts, such as this one, such as probably most of the podcasts that you listen to, we do it for the love of our subject. We aren't in it for the bucks or the fame. And if we don't get financial support from listeners or from advertisers, that doesn't and won't stop those of us who do it for love from bringing our shows to you. But if you do listen to podcasts and you do get enjoyment from them, you can repay a podcaster with a donation or even just an email, something just to let them know that you are getting value from their show. Now, this podcast and many others are also starting to be set up to accept 
value-for-value streaming contributions and boostograms via the Lightning Network if you're using a modern pod player that supports that capability and wish to support those shows in that way. If this is something you're interested in doing, you can go to newpodcastapps.com and find apps that support value-for-value payments. Now, I'm not begging for donations for this show. I'm not trying to guilt anyone into contributing anything in any way. And as I said, this mini rant is really not about me or this podcast. It really isn't. I realize that no one can help financially support every podcast that they listen to regularly. But if you enjoy podcasts, no matter how many, no matter how few, no matter how small those podcasts are, I want to encourage you to pick your most favorite ones and think about letting the host know that you enjoy the show with at least a note of appreciation and if possible, and you are so moved with financial support. Getting off the soapbox now, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of White Collared, and I would like to ask you to join me again for the next episode as I share my thoughts on Season 2, Episode 13, Countermeasures. Until then, take care and God bless.